This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's just after um, two minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. This is 3RRR, the show is Radio Marinara. My name is Dr Beach. I'm Dr Surf. And we're joined in the studio this morning by um, a Wesley Webster. Howdy. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a few years since you've been on this program, Wes. Yeah, it's a while since you let me back, so um, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and you're going to tell us about um, some very interesting parasites, or maybe not parasites, in corals later on, but we've got a few other things to, um, to talk about before we get to that. Bron's off on holiday, so it's, you know, it's the boys in the studio today, yep. all alone. Anything Kent Panley. goes. Yeah, anything goes. But before we go any further, we, of course, have to thank um, dear Tim Thorpe for another wonderful three hours of radio this morning. It's amazing what he can do when he leaves all his music at home. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, that's right. It just goes to show... It just goes to show what a beautiful archive of music we have in this fair radio and station. And what a wide knowledge Tim has in, the, in his head. That's right. He's like Google. Music Google. He is like Music Google. Dr Surf, what are you going to talk about today? I'm doing my annual wetsuit review which all the listeners would out there would just be you know waiting for that they think you know it's it's that time of year it's that time of year dr surf he's got to do his wetsuit review mm-hmm. but but I'll, it'll be very basic it's for people that come into the shop and they don't know you know do i need long sleeves do i need a back zip do i need what does four three mean i'm a bit like that and it's so it's i'm not going to be plugging any particular brand i'm just going to be giving you a genuine genuine general overview because uh an, an objective opinion wetsuits good wetsuits cost more than surfboards now your stock standard surfboard okay you can spend up to a thousand dollars on a wetsuit so you want to get it right okay so we'll talk about that at about well, about 12 minutes past nine perhaps after we um yeah do a couple of other things where's you're going to come on and talk about something really interesting in corals that's just been recently discovered yeah i guess we're going to be talking about what actually makes up the household of a coral Fantastic. Wonderful. From Coral Licolids. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in that, um, yeah, Wes is going to be talking about Coral Licolids. Segment two. Segment three, I'm, I'm very pleased to um, report on a fantastic experience I had two weeks ago, and that was on the, um, the tugboat Daintree with Jim Walsh and the rest of the crew of the Daintree, um, Jamie and Captain Bill. It was fantastic. And I, um, I spent most of yesterday teaching myself how to use um, or how to edit an audio file. I learned a lot yesterday. I felt like I could... Ca- Came out to be you know, quite professional at the end of it. Took an hour and a half of wonderful recordings, jammed that down to 10 minutes. And, um, yeah, and then I'm going to play that later on and chuck, you know... It's a pity we can't Add a bit of commentary the, in there as well. The listeners, that photo... You well, I'm going to. I do have a couple of wonderful photographs. That one I showed you, Dr Surf, before, I think we should put up on the socials. So. Yeah, you I'll don't realise do how big afterwards. the ships are until you're in a little tugboat. Underneath right. it. Underneath it. And the Daintree actually wasn't that little. It was, um, yeah, that was good fun. A uh, bit of weather. What's happening today? It's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be 22 degrees, light winds. I'll do the surf in a little while. Nice and sunny. Bit of fog. There was a bit of fog when I drove in this morning. But that's going to clear to a mostly sunny day with light winds uh, becoming east-southeast up to 20 kilometres an hour. The next few days are looking rather nice, but not a lot of rain. 25 tomorrow, 27 Tuesday, 27 Wednesday, all the way up to 29 on Saturday. 29 on Saturday. We're looking out to Saturday already. That's fantastic. Well, I hope. We just need some rain, Dr. B. Well, we do need rain, but it is Easter coming up. Lots of people will be going away camping. Right. I know they I certainly already. am. I'm going up to... Um, I'm going to Boogie. I'm looking forward to that. We had 
a very popular junior ranger program yesterday down at Point Leo. 45 kids turned up. So there's a lot of people down there at the moment. What do junior rangers do? Um, I, I teach them how to make fossils and then we go on a fossil hunt and find little baby dinosaurs in dinosaur eggs. Oh, my God, that's so cute. Which I make. How do they make fossils? Um, we do a bit of plasticine at the bottom of a cup and then they push in a dinosaur or a footprints or whatever and then you just pour plaster of Paris, wait for an hour and bingo, there's your fossil. Huh. It's not exact, Dr Beach, but yeah. the kids love it and I like it. Nice kids. Anyway, the surf, oh dear, it's not too good today. It's very small. It'll be about knee high on the beaches. There's a bit of an easterly blowing into it, which could be okay. If you're really desperate, go to Gunnamatta to Portsea or Woolamai. You won't find waves anywhere else. Okay. It's going to be quite small most of the week until about Wednesday. So, Tide's a bit of tide action there. Tide, low tide is at 11.30. And the high tide will be after that <laughs> so 6 30 how's that i can't read it because i've got these weird multifocals oh man i can barely read anything here we go high tide at 5 34 gee i was pretty close excellent anyway. that's it that's at the heads of course yes okay you got any more news you want to tell us about before we go to a track? Uh, look, there's a couple of bits of news. The first one's some sad news for those of you who know the old hippie movie Morning of the Earth. Batty Trelaw died a couple of weeks ago. He was the surfer that was shaping his own board and surfing it to the tune um, Simple Ben. Sudden heart attack in the water. In at, the water. Nice way to go. At though. age 68. And he, uh, a good friend of mine's a friend of his and... That was quite uh, alarming because he'd had all the checks and it checked out fine, but he went surfing and died. So I'm paddling a lot slower these days. Right. Just in case. Yeah, we don't want to lose you. No. And um, other than that, there's been some pretty good waves around. The, on Monday, the first Monday of the school holidays, it was just epic. Perfect surf. So I'm very happy about that. The water's still warm. This is just heaven on earth for surfers this time of the year because the water's still 18. The surf's good. Autumn is traditionally a good time for surfing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. That's why we have bells coming up. Okay. And that's all the news I have. Uh, the show is Radio Marinara. The station is 3 Triple R, and you were listening to Big Star, which was um, selected by Dr. Surf before night. I enjoyed listening to that. Lovely. And if you want to Google it, Wilco do a fantastic version mm. of that song. So too does Elliot Smith. Ah, there we go. There we go, yeah. And that was um, that was Wes in the background there, Wes Webster. He's um, he's joining us this morning, uh, Doctor Surf. I know you're going to do a wetsuit review, but there's a little article that I'd just like to spend a bit of time sure. talking about, just a minute or two, if um, if you don't mind. We've talked on this program before about noise in the sea and how much that affects the um, the inhabitants of the sea, the animals in particular. And we have no idea really how it affects the plants, but we do know that it affects whales, uh, it affects cetaceans and, you know, God knows what it does to the invertebrates and to the fish. Um, seismic testing we've talked about a little bit where they're looking for, um, you know, letting off air guns underwater, the noise that makes. And also with, um, with shipping, with the increased amount of shipping around the globe, which has gone up in, you know, leaps and bounds in the recent years. Uh, there are renewed concerns for the, the welfare of animals underwater and what all this noise does to them. Uh, there's a little article which is um, in this week's Nature, which any of you can get, which is called Ocean Uproar. I think if you Google that and Nature, you will get to this little article which is about saving marine life from a barrage of noise. This is talking about the Quiet Ocean Experiment, which is happening um, off Vancouver and other places in North America where they're trying to encourage people, or people, people who are running ships to slow down as they're coming into harbours 
and it's amazing just by cutting off three knots from say a large tanker which is coming into Vancouver Harbour for example uh, they've been able to cut down the noise levels overall by about 50% this is measured with under underwater hydrophones I don't want to talk about this too much but the last thing I do want to do on this before I leave it is to play you a little snippet a little clip um, and this is recorded from um, a hydrophone in the water of course microphone in the water and this is in Vancouver Harbour and this is, these are whale calls from a pot of whales and you'll be able to hear the whales calling to one another but then that will be quickly masked out by the, um, by the sound of a propeller which is coming through um, and one of the other things I didn't mention before in the Quiet Oceans experiment is not only we're we getting starting to get ships to slow down um, but we're also designing quieter propellers but this one is definitely not quiet and I think by listening to this you'll get a really good idea of what it's like to be underwater when a ship goes over and particularly if you have very sensitive hearing such as a whale does. You want to turn the radio down, that noise sounds horrible. And if you're in the water, if you're a whale, you can't. And, of course, that interferes with communication and many other things which we are well, we're still investigating. Um, again, that was from Nature. You should be able to find that and listen to that recording yourself and read this very interesting article. It's called Ocean Uproar, Saving Marine Life from a Barrage of Noise. Wetsuits, Dr. Surf. Yep, it's that time of year. It's that time of year. Even though the water's still 18 degrees, which is uh, abnormally warm for April... Uh, it's the time of year when we start thinking about what wetsuits we're going to wear over winter. And this is just a general guide for people who are thinking about surfing or swimming or supping or whatever you want to do in the water over winter. What should you look for? What should you ask for? Um, I get... I uh, help out at a surf shop and I get a lot of people coming in that really don't understand all the ins and outs of wetsuits so this is very much a general 101 how to buy a wetsuit i'm not going to talk too much about brands i might mention a couple towards the end but the first thing you need to understand is that if you're going to be surfing over winter you're going to need what's used to be called or still called a steamer which is long arms long legs you're also probably going to need booties from about May onwards and uh, and if you're really keen and you surf right through you'll probably need gloves and a hood. Can I, can I just ask you how, how does wearing a pair of booties interfere with um, getting up on a board which I can't do. I had a dream about it the other night <laughs> for the first time that I, that I actually did stand up on a surfboard. I don't know where well, that came from but... I can um, tell you that is an excellent question Dr Beach because I hate booties and so do a lot of other people because... Yeah, you lose contact with the ball. You do, but it's not just that. When I get up, I tend to scrape my right foot and if I don't have booties on, it just slides over the the wax. But in a booty, you've got an extra two or three mils of neoprene and and it can lead to back injuries. So booties are not... Look, they're, they're necessary for people who have 
very poor circulation in their feet, like me, who can't feel their feet at all once the water drops below about 15. Yeah. So um, uh, my recommendation with booties is that take your shoe size, go half a size or maybe even a full size below because then they're tight. The worst thing with booties is if you buy them a little bit too big and they, and you feel like Ronald McDonald with his clown boots on and your feet are slipping around inside the booty. Well, as with any wetsuit, if, it, if it's big. Yeah. Well, I guess I, so, well, slippage, yeah, on the board. I, so booties go for two to three mil. I've tried five mil booties and they feel like gum boots because they're so thick. Yeah. But it's up to you. But get them tight. They, they might feel a little bit tight, but they'll stretch. Now, a thickness... You'll be hearing things like two, three, three, four, four and a half, five and a half. That's the thickness of the neoprene that makes up the wetsuit. The lower number is generally the thickness of the arms because the thing about wetsuits is you're trying to get a balance between warmth and flexibility. So uh, around about this time of the year, you would start thinking about going into a three, four, three mil arms, four mil body. And if you want to be really warm, you want it sealed. In other words, all the seams have got a little bit of tape, neoprene tape, over them to stop water getting in. You can get double seals, which where the tape's on the inside and the out. Yep. And, but that will reduce your flexibility. So if you don't surf a lot and you don't feel the cold, I would suggest going for a single seal, 3-4. Because what that means is you're going to be able to move your arms a lot more easily, so paddling's going to be easier. Now, zips... This is a contentious issue. Some people like back zips because it's easy to get in and out of the wetsuit. Some people like chest zips because it's easier to paddle in a chest zip wetsuit. And it, it just simply is. But a chest zip, the zip is usually about, what's that, 10 centimetres, 15 centimetres. You've got to... Uh, there's a bit of a visual happening here, which yeah. is hard for radio, but yeah. <laughs> You've got to be a yoga adept to get in and out of some of these wetsuits. You'd be fine, Dr Beach. There you go. But uh, you can. It is a struggle to get in and out of them, particularly the four, fi- the four fives. Um, but if you don't mind wriggling in and out, uh, I would definitely recommend a chest zip because once you're in them, they're much warmer and they're much easier to paddle in. Or no zip. I mean, like no zip. No zip. That's an option as well. You're on fire, Doctor Beach. That's another good question. Ritual have come out with a no zip, um, and they are quite difficult to get in and out. One thing with the nose zip is once once you're in, you've got to pull the drawstring to, to make them tight. If you don't and you um, duck dive under a wave or you get dumped, the, the wetsuit can fill full of water and it can actually hold you underwater. I know that's happened to a friend of mine. So nose zips are definitely um, the most flexible, but you have to be careful with them. Now, what are you going to pay for a good wetsuit? Well, anything, you're in the 4-3 the range, you will find generally two levels entry level is around five hundred dollars and that's for a really good top of the line rip cool or o'neill um four three and that that price will go right up to seven hundred and fifty dollars for the the uh, flash bomb e6 rip curl suit seven hundred dollars for the psycho freak O'Neill, nine hundred dollars <laughs> for patagonias patagonias are very warm wetsuits uh, that are made from a plant-based uh, and they're recyclable. So they're much more environmentally... Well, there, there is an environmental issue we can discuss about this, isn't we there? Can. We don't really have time this morning. No. We'll have to um, get you back on to, to, to go into that to great detail. But but uh, And there's XL. I like XL. They're, they're a ch- they You're were not just talking cheaper. about the size now. No, no, no. Um, there's a XL Infinity. 
Um, they last a long time, but their price has gone up. A couple of uh, brands, lower-level brands that are worth mentioning. Um, Vistla, V-I-S-S-L-A, is the, they came in a couple of years ago. The word is they've been brought in by a couple of ex-Billabong employees. They're good wetsuits and they're quite cheap. They're about, you can get a top-of-the-line Vistla for 450 as opposed to 750 And uh, just finishing up, online you can buy wetsuits uh, from a, a company called Need Essentials. Need Essentials uh, only sell online. They deliver to your door within 24 hours. Their prices are half. Generally, 350 for a good 4.3. I've got one. To be honest, I've got the 4.5 with hood. It's a little bit hard to paddle in because I think the neoprene's a little bit stiffer. Generally, the higher the price the more buttery, if I can use that word, we can. the neoprene yeah. is. Buttery, I like it. So that's why Patagonia is so expensive. Um, and you'll also find Vistler put out a Japanese neoprene for okay. about $900. So there it is. Get out there. Get a good wetsuit. It makes a huge difference. Okay, as we head into winter. We do. Yeah. Indeed, think, um, think April, think April amnesty. And um, if you're listening and you, know, you enjoy this show, you enjoy anything on 3RRR, but you think, oh, I just haven't got around to subscribing. Now is a really good time to do it. There's a whole bunch of prizes out there which you will go into the draw to win. Um, but, of course, you have to do it in the fair month of April. Hmm. Yeah. We just listened to the smithereens behind the wall of sleep, very much influenced by the great Big Star. So that's my lesson for today. Listeners, and go out and buy Big Star. And you are Dr Surf and I'm Dr Beach and the show is Radio Marinara and we have Kent panelling this morning doing such a wonderful, wonderful job for us. Thank you, Kent. Uh, we're also joined in the studio by um, Wes Webster. Wesley Webster is a, um, he's a scientist. He's been on this show before. He has worked on, um, on plasmodium. Plasmodium is the thing that causes malaria and there is a little bit of a link between that and, um, and the plant world and plankton. And we're going to open that up now. We're talking about... Um, Coral Lickolids. So welcome, Wes. From Deakin, from Deakin University, I should have said. De- De- uh, Wes is a, um, a yeah. biologist from Deakin Uni. How you going? I'm doing good this morning. How are you, Peter? I'm very well, um, except my name's John. <laughs> Dr. Beach. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a paper um, put out by a group in Vancouver, which is a little bit of a connection. We talked about uh, the Quiet Oceans experiment, which was happening in Vancouver before. But Patrick Keeling is somebody who we... Um, he runs a fantastic lab. He works on protests at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And they've just punched out this wonderful paper in Nature. Um, Nature, many of you will be aware, listeners, if you get a paper into Nature, then it's a pretty big deal. And this is a big deal because it's talking about a three-player game in coral symbiosis. Yeah, um, Patrick's lab is ideally a great place to go search for new organisms and uh, corals are organisms that are pretty important not only to the ocean world but for our health in general. If you want to start looking at homes and how homes are arranged you normally have to look at what makes up the house and what makes up the occupants. In saying that they have a third player this group has found a whole new series of organisms that were previously only ever identified by their DNA sequences and one cryptic old photo showing what may or may not have been a new species. Wow, because we have been aware, so corals have a, a symbiont with them, they have a, a plankton cell, an alga that lives with them and gives them coral, car, corals, gives them those colours, those beautiful colours and that's from its pigments for doing photosynthesis but, but what are you saying, that there's another, another player in this now? 
Yeah, typically what they found before was that corals were in association with photosynthetic organisms, those that would take carbon dioxide and turn it into sugar compounds just to simply feed the coral host for providing it a home. Now this new group uh, don't really appear to be photosynthetic at all, even though they somewhat have the capacity to achieve this process. Okay, so they, they, are they, are they paras parasitic? Do we know anything about them? I mean, and, and are they in all corals? No, so they're not found in all corals, but what there was was a big series of lists of corals around the world, and it seemed like the authors got some money to go to the Caribbean As you do, yeah, yeah. get some samples for themselves. But they also took from um, aquarium samples, and in 70% of the samples that they found, they found DNA sequences that match this new type of organism. But thankfully, we really don't believe many things that are just algorithms. We want to see clear pictures, and one of the clear pictures they took was a cell inside one of the gastric cells of the coral and voila. So, so looking down a microscope at the coral at one of the cells in there the cell like in the gastric cavity so in their guts the coral guts the tube in the middle yeah inside that there were these weird ass cells that no one had seen before well they had been seen before but they just hadn't really been identified and the clear difference between this and any other symbiont is that they had their own little vacuole they had their own little wall so they had the room inside the gastric cell of a coral. So they're in a packet inside the coral, yeah, inside that, this gastric cell. That fancy packet is called the parasitophilus vacuole. And Paras it's a, a what? <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Surf, you're the one, you, you need to play dumb here. <laughs> well, if you're going to set up a house, well then you probably want your own space. And if you want to be protected somewhat, you'd want to put up your own wall. So a parasitophilus vacuole is this organism's but it was way. A pa so it's like it's a vacuole, so a bubble associated with something to do with a parasite. Yeah, it's like a, a wall around the outside or a membrane around the outside of a cell which is outside of the parasite cell, making it the parasitophilus vacuole. Okay, all right, yeah. So we've got, three we've got two symbionts now working with it. So the coral's an animal and we've got um, the zooxanthellae we kind of referred to before, those coloured plankton, um, which we've known about for ages, and they're the things that get expelled when corals get heated up that's when they bleach, bleach and die yep. and they lose those things they're chucked out but then there's this other organism what's it doing well that's the unknown thing uh it's it's really clear that when corals get hurt they spit out everything that's colorful um but what is left behind and considering that these are stuck within or inside of the gastric cells themselves it's kind of unknown as to the actual role now there are a couple of different ways you could think about a possible role is one is ensuring that the cell itself the coral cell itself has, you know, some sort of aspect to maybe attack the parasite and break that down and live on its guts for a while, or who knows, it could be policing the visitors that come to the coral. There are many different things about it. One key aspect is that it does still have some of the genes responsible for photosynthesis. But hang on, it's not coloured, it doesn't do photosynthesis. Yeah, it doesn't, but it has somewhat the potential. But that potential would be quite toxic if that cell wanted to start following that pathway. So, Hang on, what are you, I'm going to slow you down now. So, so it's got genes for making proteins that are involved in photosynthesis, but it actually doesn't do photosynthesis. No, so there's no evidence that these organisms are themselves photosynthesis but what evidence is there is they, they have some of the physical machinery, they have some of the genes responsible for achieving photosynthesis, but what they don't have is a need for it, nor probably great access to light, considering that we're stuck inside another cell. 
So what we are really looking at is a possible intermediate between a life where you live on sunshine or you start stealing the excess um, energy from other types of cells. So the real base point for parasitism. Wow. And it's and these guys are related to organisms which are full-blown parasites now, aren't they? Yeah, so they're closely related to many, many organisms that cause disease right across the world. For example, toxoplasmosis and also malaria parasites, which they themselves would have made that evolutionary decision long, long ago to decide to not live on sunshine but to start feasting on the blood or the guts of other organisms. Because the, the zooxanthellae, the coloured phytoplankton, which are in the corals as well, they're also in that group, aren't they? So, that, so they do photosynthesis, but they're not too distantly related to the, the thing that causes malaria and this new coralicolid, as Keeling's lab is calling them. Yeah, so the coralicolids themselves pair closely with, uh, with the parasites that infect many other animals, but other organisms themselves that are similarly related and those that cause photosynthesis within corals, they themselves aren't really showing any evidence of parasitism. That's more of a symbiotic relationship and what we really need so to So somebody's getting out of the, you know, each partner's getting something nice out of the relationship. Yeah, they're all paying equal rent there. Right. Um, but really what we'd like to know is just exactly the difference between something that shares or something that takes away. And right now we can't say whether or not these have a role in sharing and providing a nice environment or themselves are actually parasitizing the organisms. But it appears that they're in a large percentage of corals. I think I read it's like 60 or 70% of those that they looked at. They found evidence for the existence of these organisms. They sure did. So they definitely do belong there. And I suppose with all the stresses that, we've, um, that we know corals are, are undergoing with um, increasing temperature, pollution, all sorts of stuff, this, of course, you know, reminds us of... There's this new organism that's living with corals. Well, it's not new. It's new to us. We've only just realised it's there now. It's probably been there for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, but it behooves us very much to, to work more on this and figure out what they're doing in the, um, in the hope of having more corals around. I've just got a quick question which you might have already answered. Have they studied bleached corals to see if this whatever it's called. Oh, good question, uh, Dr. There. Surf. Good question. Look, I think that, that would have been an obvious question, but if you're going to write a grant <laughs> to decide whether or not you get to go to the Caribbean or just stare at some dead coral, I think you'd look at the live coral. I'm sure I could find some dead coral in the Caribbean. You sure could, but whether or not it still has the DNA of the infesting yeah. cells or the... the it's an interesting question. Whether or not they actually survive. That's so the next grant. Please, yeah, the next grant. Please feel free to send in dead coral samples to <laughs> Triple R Studios. <laughs> so if anyone's interested in having a squiz at this paper themselves, where's, um, where can they find it? Um, well, I found this one on Twitter, but I also found it in my email inbox. It's in Nature, and Walden Kwong, the, the lead author of this project, has done a really nice little video, a little um, animation of someone swimming and how exactly corals work with organisms that live on sunshine or perhaps steal a little bit of their own energy. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so, I'd, well, I personally look forward to seeing what more comes out of this, um, this research. I think it's a very fascinating thing and it's something which has kind of changed the field of coral biology, which is why it's appeared in the prestigious journal Nature. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the very great pleasure of going out on a tugboat, which is called the Daintree. Um, this came about because oh, I was a while ago. I put a bit of a call out on air saying I'd like to go out on a um, on some kind of industrial vessel um, tugboat. 
maybe um, a pilot boat, one of the ones that bring in people. And then I had a phone call from Jim Walsh straight afterwards. He said, yeah, let's go. And it's finally been organised. And, um, you know, it had to go, we had to go through a bit of hoops, get permission and all that to go out on the, on the docks. Do you have to do training? Uh, we, we certainly had an initiation when we got on there, you know, tar and feathered, you know, a bit, a bit of hazing and all of that. You didn't no, have to no, do it was, it, was, it was, yeah, just a bit of safety stuff when we got on, we were just told things. But, um, yeah, it was the tugboat called the Daintree and Jim Walsh um, works on that tugboat along with two other crew, Jamie and Bill. And it was a really lovely thing. We went out for a couple of hours. So I'm going to record it, you know, getting into this now, I'm taking my microphone out into the field and recording things. So I recorded a lot of interesting stuff and I crammed it down to, to 10 minutes yesterday. And please forgive me, I, I apologise in advance, but my editing skills are not fantastic. So there might be a couple of glitches in there. But um, yeah, we're just going to, um, let's run with this and see how it turns out. Thanks, Ken. When I got away to see Australia had a strong merchant fleet. Yeah. Um, these days it's really broken down to a little bit of Bass Strait and some smaller shipping, and we see recently on the news where blokes were removed from some of the last bulk carriers in the country. We, yeah. we don't have tankers anymore. Yeah. Um, we used to carry all our own fuel between ports in Australia and also overseas. You know, we've worked into the Middle East on big crude carriers, but they're all gone these days. So do we, I mean, we'll see this very soon, I guess, but do you chuck the line at the tanker, at the ship, or do they chuck a line to you? They, they'll send the a line down, yep. and then I'll send up what's called the messenger, which is that 24mm line there on the end of the, uh, the what we call the grommet, the HMPE. Yep. And then they'll put that over their bits, and we'll operate from there. And you have to adjust the length depending on what you're doing and the size of the ship. Because there's a lot of forces enacted with different angles, yep. and all that's uh, taken into account. So we're going to go out through the docks. We're now at with Web Dockers. Uh, this is this is uh, South Wharf, 31 South Wharf. Uh, we'll proceed from here up to Web Dock, which takes about 30 minutes up the river under the West Gate, or down the river, I should say. And so we'll go Web... under the West Gate. Correct. Meet the ship, which is steaming uh, up the bay at the moment. No, the ship's alongside its departure. Ah, it's a departure, the first one. Okay. Yes, and then the next one will will come. Uh, yeah, I just I just want to chop in there for a minute. I probably should have bit more of a preamble for this. That was Jim Walsh we were just listening to. So we we're on the dock and we we're about to get onto the tugboat and he's explaining to me what's going to happen for, for the next hour. Um, well, the next couple of hours, actually. So we're, we're actually looking at the, at, the, at the rope that they use instead of the old chains and stuff. And then we're going to go down into the engine room and then we're going to come back up onto the bridge and we'll, we'll be talking to, um, to Captain Bill, Bill the captain of the, of the Daintree, and then we're going to go out and bump a a ship out and we're going to bump a ship in but I think what we listen to is actually getting a ship off the dock and then sending it out there. Back down to here that's why we, we won't be back once we leave we'll do a, do a departure which will take probably an hour yep. and then an arrival which will take about an hour and a half. Okay. Pleasant way to spend a Sunday afternoon for us. But job for you. <laughs> yeah job for me. Yeah. Oh well you know I've, I've had to put away the deck chair so you couldn't see me sunbaking. <laughs> yeah this purple line the the grommet is a is an exotic. What they what they uh, has different names for different manufacturers, but HMPE is the correct uh, chemical sort of name, and uh, uh, plasma is another name. They, it has no stretch. It's it's like a wire, and these days we're seeing this sort of line being used for extreme salvage cases because it's a lot lighter and a lot easier to uh, handle. And it won't wouldn't rust, I guess. Correct, but they can also lift it with a helicopter. So it's light, it's strong, and it won't rust. Correct, but really expensive. Very expensive. It, it does have a drawback. It doesn't like uh, tight angles. 
Um, you, you can't really tie a knot in it. It's, uh, it's coefficients, very slippery. Yeah. But generally speaking, it has its application. Quite an appealing purple colour that it has. That's lovely. It's faded a little bit. We'll have a look inside there. How, uh, many, how many horsepower? Like, you know, oh, we better ask Jamie that, but it could right. be around 3,500. It's massive. Two V16 Caterpillar engines. Um, you really... People don't appreciate how much power these machines have. It is phenomenal. Well, I guess they don't need it, don't they? Because they're dragging it. Yeah. So this tug is 24 metres long. It's 11 metres beam. Um, the stumpy, pure harbour-orientated tug. And the amount of horsepower. We get small vessels coming astern of us. And for those people that might be listening, you know, you've got to appreciate we're pushing so much water behind us. It's extremely dangerous to come anywhere near us when we're operating. That is a good thing to remember. Yeah, yeah I noticed you've got binoculars down here. And you've almost got, you've got a bit of a sunroof as well. So you can, you can see out. You can see well, what's happening. When you, when you see how close we get to the ships, you'll see uh, why the window is handy. Because <laughs> we're getting under the bows. And you've got to be able to see that we're not going to hit them with the mast or uh, other... I'm just looking out the back here, Jim, and these are pretty cool exhaust pipes you've got. Yeah. <laughs> Funnels. Funnels, all oh, right. Funnels. And, that, that's, and that's, that's, the the stern, right that's the stern, Dr. Beach. It's, oh. it's, the, it's the blunt end, yes. <laughs> you can call it the back, it's okay. The back. <laughs> Funnels. But, but they are for exhaust, aren't they? That's correct. Yeah, we'll go ahead and have a look in the engine room, and Jamie will be down there, the engineer. He's a great boss. 2,000 kilowatts, it's about. 2,000 kilowatts, they're yeah. caterpillars. Cater oh. They're all caterpillars, caterpillars, so like two generators. Yeah. Two main engines, uh, a fire pump over here, a big fire monitor pump, it's a caterpillar as well. It's all looking pretty, uh, pretty slick and uh, it's like new. someone's kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a galley. It's beautiful. Galley. I like the galley, it's like someone's galley. Yeah. That, that's a thruster, our thruster unit, our starboard thruster, but one on either side, port yep. and starboard. Uh, and they can, the sort of drive shaft comes through, the right angle gearbox drives repeller. But they're also equipped with these motors here, which can rotate the thruster around 360 degrees, and that's why the tugs are. I'm being dumb here, but is, is the thruster different to the propeller? No, the propeller's like a, it just means an enclosed propeller. It's got a big ring around okay. the outside of it. Right. Yeah, I can see a Rolls Royce label on that. It's pretty fancy. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> they make a lot of things Rolls Royce, not just uh, nice cars. So the um, the Daintree is what's called an azimuthing stern drive tug. Yeah. Uh, it means it's got propellers that are able to rotate, not just to create thrust, but they also the direction of the propeller thrust can can rotate through 360 degrees. And we've got two of those. So if you think of our propellers like uh, two big outboard motors, uh, they can rotate in that same way to steer the tug. So you can, you can spin around very effectively. We can spin. You can do whatever you want. We can do donuts, 360s, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> donuts are not really uh, pretty. Donuts. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're, they're high, very high performance tugs. And what that means for us, uh, I think it was probably about 40 years ago, that these, um, this design of tugs, this propulsion system uh, was invented. If you think back to uh, when the Titanic was getting towed around, yep. you'd have a tugboat with a tow line over the back of the tug, the stern and a single propeller and a rudder to steer the tug. And those tugs can pull very well, but they can't push the ship. So they had to pull everywhere and, and those tugs were not very manoeuvrable. So about 40 years ago, a very smart person decided to put two propellers that can rotate on the back of the tug yeah. and our tow winch on the front. Is, is there a limit to the size of the ship that you can deal with? Not really. Um, the the limiting factors really are the wind and the current, the atmos 
you know, sort of uh, environmental effects on the ship yeah. and how much power you need. So um, Melbourne, for example, all of these tugboats are 40, uh, sorry, 70 tonnes bollard pull. So if you um, have a rope over a pulley and you, you pull it and you put a 70 tonne weight, you know, so 50, 60 small family cars, yeah. <clears throat> these tugboats can lift that many. Up here. Right, so we've got two journeys, journey one, journey two, and this is our little distribution board. We've got a few services here, fans, pumps. Okay, so first the music, just warm up for me. So we'll start this engine up, so start, just hold that button in. The red one or the? Uh, the green one to start, hold it, hold it, hold it. Okay, generator's running, 50 hertz. Pull on the bolts, oh, good to go. So now we want to take the shore supply off, so here's our shore breaker. He's just dropped down the small ropes so they can drag up the big one. Yep, and we go up in stages, so that's a 24mm diameter, what we call our messenger rope going up. Yeah. And it's long enough that the crew can usually get it to a winch if they need to, and then... Tugela, Daintree, Daintree's all fast on the port quarter up on the poop deck. Uh, do you want us to hold up, Dave? Now we're getting tension in the rope. Hold up their weight as we let go. 
and clear. Roger that, we're all finished uh, with you. Uh, thanks very much, Bill, and uh, we'll see you uh, later in the week. Thanks, Dave. Finished with the don't drink. Safe trip, mate. Cheers. So, that's it. That's all we do for a departure offer. Yeah. It's called a pluck off. A pluck off. <laughs> and they're going to pluck off somewhere else out of Fremantle. <laughs> Indeed, that was a pluck off. That was um, that was on the Daintree happening um, two weeks ago. And the person you were hearing most in the last five minutes of that was Bill. He was the he's the skipper of the tug. Um, three on the crew. Captain uh, Bill. Captain Bill. Uh, Jim Walsh was the one who was talking at the, um, in the uh, at the beginning, taking us through all the different things. And also we had Jamie down in the engine room. It was. Um, it, Listening back to it now, you don't, I'm not sure how much of a kind of sense of what was happening you, you got because it was all quite quiet in the tug itself. I've got some photographs which I'll put up on Facebook, um, but it's you know it's, it's an enclosed cabin and you can it, it's, it's like being in a, almost in a big greenhouse, but with these huge propellers on the back. And I, I think you got a sense of the power of the thing when we went down to the engine room and fired up those those twin caterpillars, which was which was a lot of fun. My only question is. That was a special event. It's not something the public can do. No, it's it? not something um, they they don't open it up to the public. It was um, I was very fortunate to go and yeah, I thank Jim Fantastic. Walsh and, and the and the crew of the Daintree for having me. And the only other question is how do how do I become a tugboat captain? How do you become a tugboat captain? Well, well, we we did talk captain. about those things at length, and unfortunately, we've only got a minute and a half left. But quickly, but all of those guys are very very highly experienced. It'd I mean, Jim years, Jim Walsh it? at the beginning was talking about. I mean, he's been been to Antarctica. Um, done a lot of different things. They've, they've all spent like at least 20 years at sea. Uh, the skipper, Bill, he was telling me that he he did a calculation that said like for the before he started on the tugs, he was on sort of ocean-going ships, and in 20 years he had a period of 20 years he only had 11 years of those at home. The rest of the time was on the sea, or it might have been 11 years at sea. But anyway, good deal of time. It's out to sea, and all these people are very, very high, highly experienced, very prof- professional um, operation there, and it was just fascinating going through the docks. I mean, I hadn't quite realised that the docks now are completely automated. I mean, you need the tugs to to pluck the ships off and to bring them in and to gently bump them into the into the docks, but when the, all the ships are being unloaded at the Port of Melbourne, which is the largest container port in the country, that is all completely automated. We were stopped, you know, snuggled, you know, having a look at all the what I would call gantries, but they're called something else now, plucking stuff off, and this happens 24 hours a day. Anyway, fascinating experience. Um, we've got to get out of here, but just before we go, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Sir, for coming Pleasure. in. I'd like to thank Wesley Webster from Deakin University for coming in and talking to us about coral lichens. And I'd also very much like to, again, thank the crew of the Daintree, Jim Walsh, Jamie and Bill. Um, thanks also to you, Kent, for panelling. Next week we have um, Bron and Rex in the studio. Uh, we'll get out of your way now. For the doctors, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.